0: hello and welcome to jeff's midweek bible study a verse-by-verse teaching through the bible with pastor jeff Lassane. we hope this podcast encourages your faith and now here's pastor jeff Everybody, Pastor Jeff Lassane here, welcoming you to our midweek Bible study podcast. This podcast is for all Christian believers who love the Word of God and uh, who desire to go through the Scriptures verse by verse. In recent weeks, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark in a series that we're calling Good News for Busy People. I intentionally keep each weekly episode at around 30 minutes so it can fit into your busy schedule, whether you're sitting down to listen, perhaps driving in your car, or tuning in during other activities like exercising. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, the emphasis has been on the miracles of Jesus more than the teachings of Jesus. It's helpful then for us to remember that all four gospels give us the biography of Jesus. That is to say, together they record his birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. And while all four Gospels record most of the same major events, each Gospel writer does so through his particular viewpoint and with some different details. All the Gospel writers and all the Bible writers, for that matter, were inspired of God by the Holy Spirit, but God used these different vessels, if you will, with their different perspectives and different lives and backgrounds. When it comes to the Gospels, we're blessed to have a broader and more comprehensive picture of the life of Jesus. Think of it in terms of a movie and reading four different reviews about it. All four of those reviewers are going to address the same main movie plot, but with a different emphasis on different aspects of the movie. One might focus in on the acting performances, while others may give attention to particular plot lines, or to the cinematography, or to the director's approach in filming. But after reading all four of those reviews, you should walk away with a broader understanding about that single film. And while in the same way, the four Gospels, they don't contradict, but rather they complement each other. The Gospels have different perspectives because each Gospel was written to a different audience, by a different author, and with a different perspective or emphasis. Matthew wrote his gospel to a Jewish audience, and his emphasis is on the sermons of Jesus. Luke wrote his gospel to a Greek audience, and his emphasis is on the parables of Jesus. John wrote his gospel to a wide-range audience, and his emphasis is on the doctrines of Jesus. Mark then wrote his gospel to a Roman audience and his emphasis is on the miracles and the works of Jesus as we've been clearly seeing in our studies of the first 6 chapters. You could look at it this way that Matthew emphasized what Jesus said, Mark on what Jesus did, Luke on what Jesus felt, and John on who Jesus was. You know, one of the cardinal rules for every good speaker and writer is to know your audience. Mark's target audience then, the Romans, were very practical and they valued action above words. Therefore, knowing his audience, Mark records much more about what Jesus did rather than what Jesus said. And accordingly, Mark only records, for example, two of the Lord's sermons, but he records 18 of his miracles. Even so, here now in Mark chapter 7, we come to a noticeable shift We move from stories of great miracles to a moment of great conflict. You've probably heard Christians say, and you may even have said it yourself, that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship with Jesus Christ, and I agree with that. In the passage before us then, we'll witness religion colliding head-on with the person of Jesus Christ. Let's move forward then. Let's read our verses in Mark 7. We're going to pick up and begin in verse 1. Then some of the Pharisees and scribes came together to Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, or that is to say, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders." When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold on to, like the washing of cups, pictures, copper vessels, couches, and so forth. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold on to the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. Well, the title of this message is Religious Lip Service. Many of us are familiar with the term paying lip service, which describes voicing your support and approval for something, but never personally acting on it. For example, in marriages, we have spouses who tell their mate that they love them, but they never act on it in a practical way, or let's say they act on it very seldom. Instead, they act oftentimes in the opposite manner, offer no respect or support or kindness or understanding. So then saying, I love you, becomes nothing more than marital lip service. Or when a company assures you that they're all about service after the sale, and then when you need them, you can't get them to even return your phone calls, that's just lip service. In the passage before us, we find the unsaved religious leaders attacking Jesus over man-made traditions, which leads Jesus to expose them as practicing religious lip service. Let's look more closely at the confrontation here. In verse one, we read that some of the Pharisees and scribes who are different members of the Jewish religious leaders, they came up to Galilee from Jerusalem to confront Jesus. Now, before we look at their complaint, let's remind ourselves about what Jesus has been doing up in Galilee up to this point. Let's see, he's been healing thousands of sick people from diseases, disabilities, and demon possession, among other things. Along with all that, Jesus has been performing miracles from calming violent storms to raising the dead to feeding thousands of people with a child's sack lunch and allowing those healings and miracles to demonstrate that he is God come in the flesh. Jesus was teaching and telling those people that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. It genuinely never ceases to amaze me how those religious leaders could witness or hear about the many miracles that Jesus was doing, and yet it never penetrated or phased their hard hearts. Jesus raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead in Capernaum, and all they could focus on was Jesus violating their man-made Sabbath rules and hand-washing rituals. Oh my. As it's been well said, there are none so blind as those who will not see. And so it was that those religious leaders made a 90-mile journey up to Galilee from their home base in Jerusalem. Not only was the distance 90 miles, the travel conditions would have been challenging. In the first century, there were no planes, trains, and automobiles, so they needed to walk or possibly they rode donkeys. When they finally arrived and surveyed the ministry of Jesus, they attacked him in verse 5. But let's take a closer look at what is recorded first in verses 2 to 4 to see what they were so upset about. In verse 2, they witnessed the disciples of Jesus eating bread without washing their hands and therefore defiling themselves. Now, in our 21st century culture, when we read these words, we think in terms of the disciples practicing bad hygiene, failing to wash their hands before they handled their food. Today in our COVID crazy culture, people are overly obsessed with hygiene and personal safeguards. This causes people to drive around in their cars all by themselves wearing a mask. Or like the guy who pulled up next to me at the hardware store parking lot, he's wearing a mask inside his car as he drove up, and then as he got out of his car and stood up, he took the mask off, threw it down on the front seat, and proceeded to walk into a busy store full of people. I have no idea what he was trying to protect himself from unless it was from catching some common sense. Others will saturate their hands with sanitizer after every handshake or touch of a doorknob. The CDC strongly recommends that people wash their hands for at least 20 seconds, and they suggest that people can do that properly by singing happy birthday to themselves twice. Well, I refuse to comply, so I only sing Happy Birthday once when I'm washing my hands, but it is the Beatles version, which is almost three minutes long, so I think I'll be okay. Oh well. The concern here in our story, however, wasn't about personal hygiene. It was about ceremonial washing. There's an old saying that most of us have heard, cleanliness is next to godliness. Uh, That does not come from the Bible, though many people mistakenly think it does. This ceremonial cleansing before eating food was a common practice among the Jewish religious leaders and most of the Jews. Mark simply describes it here in verse 3 as washing their hands in a special way. So what was that special way? Well, it involved the person taking first their dominant hand and with their fingers extended straight up, having a small jar of water poured over their fingers twice. Then the same thing was done for the other hand and then it was repeated all over again with the fingers pointing down. Some ultra-pious Jewish leaders would not only perform this ritual before every meal, but between every course of the meal, if you can imagine that. And if you're wondering again, where's the soap and the rubbing of your hands, this was again not about hygiene, this was about a traditional ritual. Which brings the next question, why was it done? It really wasn't hygiene, it was ceremonial. So why? Well, this washing was done to remove spiritual defilement or impurity, primarily associated with being in contact with Gentiles or anything that might defile them as Jews. It's probably not the same thing, but when I was growing up, we called it cooties. (laughs) Seriously, though, defilement prevented the Jews from worshiping at the temple and made them unfit to interact with God. And then comes the key question, was this ceremonial washing required by God? Please listen, it was required for the priests, as we read in Leviticus 22, because they were going in and out of the temple and the tabernacle to perform their religious duties. However, it was never required of anyone else. God commanded it for the priesthood only, but not for any of the other Jews. So why all the fuss, and what was this really all about? Well, over the centuries during the Old Testament period, the Jewish rabbis kept adding rituals and rules and regulations to the laws that God had actually given to them. Many of those regulations and rituals and rules were so-called interpretations of God's law. In the course of time, they had turned, for example, the Ten Commandments into hundreds, over 600 rules and rituals like this hand-washing. For each rabbi, it was almost their legacy to leave behind their own oral traditions that were then recorded and put into writing. Eventually, those oral traditions were collected into what was called the Mishnah, and it became a part of the larger Jewish Talmud. In standard printing, the Talmud is 6,200 pages long, which makes War and Peace look like an airport paperback. And as crazy as it sounds, 30 chapters of the Mishnah, about 25% of that volume, has to do with just ceremonial ritual cleansing. In verse 4, Mark makes reference to another ritual when it says, When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Coming from the agora, or the marketplace, and mixing in with all those various people was considered even more of a serious defilement. It was like a level 2 defilement and required a full immersion in water. Mark also adds in verse 4 that they had tons of other traditions concerning cups and pitchers and vessels and couches that they laid on and so forth. Crazy. In verse 5, then, we see the conflict arise as the religious leaders attack Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? From the moment those religious leaders took their first step on that journey up to Galilee, their entire motive and intent was to confront and attack Jesus. They were jealous of him, they hated him, and in fact they wanted to kill them if they could, and they would eventually, but for now they'd settle for trying to discredit him. And they were also protecting their huge encyclopedia of man-made traditions, which Jesus and his disciples were basically ignoring. Traditions can become like superstitions. I'm a little stitious, but I'm not superstitious. Ha ha. Notice the key phrases here in this story. At the end of verse 2, the religious leaders found fault. That's pretty much what they were, fault finders. Jesus described them as straining at a gnat but swallowing a camel. That's a great description. You know, we still have people like that in the church today. They actually think it's their spiritual gift and their calling from God to find fault in everybody else. Another key phrase is used twice in verses 3 and 5. The tradition of the elders. Please don't miss this. The conflict here wasn't about God's word, it was all about their man made traditions. This was the worst case scenario of legalism. For example, God commanded the Jews to keep the Sabbath day holy. The rabbis turned that into a boatload of rules and regulations, such as you can't light a fire, you can only walk a certain short distance. You couldn't use a sewing needle, you couldn't cook a meal, you couldn't do laundry, and on it went. Even today, if you visit Jerusalem and stay at a hotel, many of them have what are called Shabbat elevators. Shabbat or Sabbath elevators do not require you or need you to push any buttons for your particular floor because those elevators automatically stop at each floor. So for any Orthodox Jews staying at that hotel, they don't have to worry about violating the Sabbath by pushing an elevator button, which would then be considered working. You just climb onto the elevator and wait for it eventually to land at your floor and the doors to open. However, if you're a Gentile staying at a high-rise hotel, you don't want to get on the Shabbat elevator. Take one of the others, otherwise it's going to take you all afternoon to get back to your room. When the religious leaders clashed with Jesus and the disciples over the Sabbath, it was because the disciples had violated one of their man-made Sabbath rules and regulations that never came from God. So again, for example, when the disciples grabbed a small handful of grain to eat, those religious leaders accused them of harvesting crops on the Sabbath. It's ridiculous. Or when Jesus healed a man's withered hand on the Sabbath— They completely ignored the the miracle and accused him of working on the Sabbath. Just absurd. But that's what legalism does. In fact, to add man-made regulations to the Word of God is the worst form of legalism. And when you add to the Word of God, you actually subtract from it. And really, more to the point, the Bible issues very serious warnings against those who would presume to add to or take away from the Word of God. When I first became a Christian back in 1980, a Christian co-worker of mine invited me to attend his church. And When I asked him the name of the church, he said, oh, we don't believe in having a name. We just refer to ourselves as a group of Christian believers meeting in the name of Jesus. I said, okay, where does the church meet? And he said, oh, we don't believe in having a church building. We just meet in different homes at different times. Now, even being new in my faith, I quickly sensed that something wasn't quite right, and so I declined to attend. As time went on, I came to discover that they were very legalistic Christians. The women in the church were not permitted to wear pants or makeup or to have short hair or to work outside of their home. The men and the boys all had to wear coats and ties to the service. Families were not permitted to attend Disneyland because it was considered too worldly. And boys could not participate in contact sports like football because it was considered too aggressive. Hey, have you ever been to the mall and done some Christmas shopping? That's a contact sport. If an individual believer chose to live their life that way, I wouldn't agree with it, but I'd just leave that between them and the Lord. But for a group that calls themselves a church and with leaders to dictate those unbiblical rules to their members about what they can't do and where they can't go, well, that's like a cult. And at the very least, it's legalism. At other times, the religious leaders were angry with Jesus after he healed a man with leprosy because he had defiled himself by, himself by touching that man. Or when people touch Jesus in hopes of being healed, they consider Jesus to have become defiled. If Jesus just sat and ate a meal with unsaved people, they accused him of the terrible sin of eating with sinners. Hey, here's a newsflash. We're all guilty of eating with sinners at every meal because everybody is a sinner. Even if you eat alone, you're eating with a sinner yourself. Thank God that Jesus was and is the friend of sinners. The situation with these religious leaders was out of control because they had come to seriously believe, listen, that their traditions carried more weight and authority than God's word. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was teaching his followers, uh, he used a particular phrase over and over again. You might remember he kept saying, you have heard it said. You have heard it said that you shall not commit murder, but I say to you, Or, you have heard it said that you shall not swear an oath, but I say to you. Or, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you. Now, Jesus was not altering the truth about what God commanded regarding those things. And in fact, he expanded it to include the motives of the heart. But each time that Jesus repeated that phrase, you have heard it said, he was actually addressing the oral traditions of the rabbis, along with their man-made rules, regulations, and rituals. Once again, this becomes both dangerous and blasphemous when man-made traditions carry more weight than the actual inspired scriptures. That's what Jesus says in verse 9. Legalism becomes a form of idolatry because it elevates the word of men above the word of God. Here's some quotes to make the point. Listen to these. The Jewish Talmud says, and I quote, It is a greater crime to transgress the words of Rabbi Hillel than the words of Scripture. That's an actual recorded quote, and it's blasphemy. Speaking of this ceremonial cleansing that we've been looking at, a rabbi wrote, and again I quote, Whoever has his abode in the land of Israel and eats his food with ceremoniously washed hands may rest assured That he shall receive eternal life. Seriously? Clean hands and living in Israel equals eternal life? No wonder you'll understand more now why in Matthew 23 Jesus called the religious leaders blind guides, hypocrites, fools, serpents, and vipers, and accused them of making their converts twice as much a son of hell as they were. Another rabbi wrote, he who expounds the scriptures in opposition to the traditions of the elders has no part in the world to come. Wow. So if you don't follow the hundreds of rules and regulations and traditions of the Jewish leaders, you will go to hell which, by the way, is just like the problem of most religions today. It's all based on works and rule-keeping for salvation, and on it goes. It's just nonsense. The story is told of another rabbi who was imprisoned. He was given a very small amount of water to drink, but instead of drinking it, he used it to ceremoniously wash his hands. Then he said, I would rather die than transgress the traditions of the elders. Well, we can better understand the hatred and attacks of the religious leaders against Jesus as we see here in this passage. This brings up the question then about keeping religious traditions. How about today? Are all traditions wrong or are they bad? Well, first off, we want to distinguish between religious traditions and secular or other traditions. For example, families have many of their own traditions about a lot of different things like holidays or birthdays or whatever the case may be. Many people in many different countries celebrate uh, Christmas as the birth of Christ, but they have different traditions about how they celebrate. And of course, many schools, sports teams, various organizations, they all have their own particular traditions. And now there's the question of religious traditions. Are they all bad? Are they wrong? Well, without getting into any specifics, because there's hundreds of them, I would simply offer this guideline religious traditions must never contradict violate oppose undermine distract diminish di- diminish diminish <laughs> how about an actual word diminish or supersede god's holy word and they must never add to god's word since i kind of blew that up let me let me repeat that I'll offer this guideline when it comes to religious traditions. They must never contradict, violate, oppose, undermine, distract, diminish, or supersede God's holy word, and they must never add to God's word. Using that guideline, the vast majority of religious traditions are either unbiblical or at the very least unnecessary. If someone told me that their church has a tradition of always giving every mother a rose as they enter into Sunday service on Mother's Day— I wouldn't have a problem with that. But if a church said, oh, you could only sing hymns, uh, you can never use musical instruments, you could only read from the King James Version of the Bible, or everyone must wear their very best attire in order to attend church service, my response would be, be very careful about putting your traditions and your man-made rules above the scriptures. I'll give you one short passage to consider, and then we'll move on. In James 2, we read, My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, we must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your church meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man comes in filthy old clothes as well. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes, and you say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet, Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Other than the requirements for modesty and humility, I can't make a biblical case for a specific dress code in order to attend church. So individually, if you want to wear your best attire to attend church, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. Or if you are more comfortable and you prefer just wearing jeans and a t-shirt, that's your choice and there's nothing wrong with that. And most importantly, God always looks at the heart. Now coming to verse 6, Jesus responds to the attack of these religious leaders by identifying them as hypocrites in fulfillment of a prophecy from Isaiah. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the traditions of men. Again, it was nothing more than religious lip service. They were all talk with no genuine heart of worship. It was all smoke and mirrors and show on the outside, but no reality on the inside. Notice how Jesus quotes Isaiah in saying, In vain they worship me. The word for vain means useless and worthless. Imagine Jesus telling someone, you know, when you worship me, it's worthless. Jesus sums it up in verse 8 saying they lay aside or reject the true commandments or word of God, the commandments that God himself actually spoke and gave to us. And in its place, they try to honor him with their worthless man-made teachings about silly things like washing their hands ceremonially. So, what is the application for us today? Well, first off, I think most importantly, we have a lot of religious people in the world today who have no relationship with Jesus and have never experienced God's forgiveness for their sins. As one pastor recently said, and I quote I fear there are multitudes like Judas Iscariot in the contemporary church. They are friendly to Jesus. They look and talk like disciples, but they are not committed to Him. Ouch. But you know what? It's true. Many religious people today are attending church all over the world because their family has always gone to that church, or because they were water baptized in that church as a child, or because they grew up in the church, or because they consider themselves to be a good person. But none of those things will ever get anyone into heaven. Nothing short of genuine repentance from our sins, along with genuine submission and surrender to God by faith, with the full recognition that Jesus is the sacrifice and Savior for our sin, believing that Jesus rose up from the dead. Without that, there is no salvation. As Jonathan Edwards rightly said, and I quote, "...the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary." In my years of ministry, I've presided over many funeral services and memorials, and among all of those services uh, for believers, the most requested song has been the hymn Amazing Grace. And I think that's because we can identify with John Newton's lyrics and the radical change that God produced in our hearts at conversion. Newton was the captain of a slave ship transporting African prisoners to be sold in in America and in England. Conditions aboard those slave ships were deplorable, and as many as 25% of the slaves taken ended up dying just in the transport. Newton was personally responsible for making several round trips. But then Newton went through a couple of near-death experiences, first with a severe storm at sea and then later with a near-fatal sickness. Through those experiences, God humbled Newton and brought him to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Newton eventually became a minister. Wherever he preached, large crowds gathered to hear the old converted sea captain. In time, he wrote and spoke out against the slave trade as he needed to, confessing his past personal sins and contributions to it. And then he assisted William Wilberforce in his efforts to abolish the African slave trade business. Newton went on to write hundreds of hymns, most notably Amazing Grace. Newton never ceased to marvel at God's amazing grace in his own wretched life, and he could hardly talk about that grace without crying. God's grace was the dominant theme in his preaching. When he became blind and was losing his memory, the church suggested that he should retire. But he responded by saying, What? Shall the old Africa blasphemer stop while he can still speak? My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And so may God help each and every one of us to realize that we are great sinners, and that Jesus Christ is a great Savior.